Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number 68, Adele Quigley McBride, Fillers, Contextual Bias, and Forensic Comparisons. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Adele Quigley McBride. Adele is a PhD student who works with Gary Wells in the Department of Psychology at Iowa State University. Adele's research interests are in the areas of eyewitness identification and forensic testing procedures. She has taught classes on psychometrics, research methods, and a seminar on diversity. Our podcast today features Adele's new article, Fillers Can Help Control for Contextual Bias in Forensic Comparison Tasks, which was co-authored with Gary Wells and published last year in the journal Law and Human Behavior. In it, Adele reports on some psychological experiments related to the problem of contextual bias in forensic science. When forensic analysts receive contextual information related to the evidence that they're examining, that information can create expectations, and those expectations can lead to bias. Adele asks whether introducing filler samples of known innocence might help reduce this expectation bias. Since analysts don't know which samples are the real ones and which ones are these control samples, the hope is that the technique will cause analysts to ignore the potential contextual information. Do fillers work in practice? My conversation with Adele tries to find out. Adele, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Glad to be here. To begin, I was hoping that you could give our listeners some context to your study. What's the broader problem that you're trying to address, and how is your study important to that project? Okay, so the main problem that I was looking at with this research project was this idea of contextual bias and how it relates to a forensic context or forensic analysis. Contextual bias is this idea that when you have expectations about the kind of outcome that you expect in a decision, then that can frame your decision, essentially. So it can change how you perceive information, it can change how you interpret information, and ultimately change your decision. So this is a problem in forensics because often forensic analysts have extra information, whether it's from the police officer that gave them the work, whether it's a case report that's included with the forensic materials. And all of this can give them an idea of what outcome they should be looking for. So typically, if they can tell which materials are from the suspect, then they can glean that they're supposed to say that there's a match between that suspect's materials and the crime scene materials. And so the problem that I was trying to address was, can I find this contextual bias effect with fingerprints? And then can I also find a procedure that removes the influence of that contextual information without 
having to require the person doing the analysis to ignore the information or anything, because we know that people can't do that very well. Now, I think it's fair to say that the problem of contextual bias is reasonably well known, but not very much has changed over the years. Why do you think that is? Let me be a little bit more specific. It's always seemed to me that we should simply blind the samples. Is there something about institutional culture that makes this problem super persistent, or are there reasons that blinding is not feasible? Well, there's a couple of reasons why blinding wouldn't be adequate. So the reason that I'm saying that is that if you blind people to other information related to that forensic sample, that's not enough. So when you're presented with just one sample, you will pretty much know that that's from the suspect. So typically what happens with forensic analysis is that they get given the suspect sample and the crime sample and asked if they match. And so because they know that's the suspect, they know that there must be a reason that they're giving them those materials to analyze. So even just the procedure itself has contextual information built in. But the other issue that seems to be preventing us from making progress and sort of working against this problem of contextual bias is that a lot of forensic techniques weren't actually created by scientists. They were created by people in law enforcement who have a really difficult job. They need to find evidence to try and convict someone. So they come up with all these techniques, which are valid in lots of ways, but they miss out on these rules of formal science. And it's really difficult to change policy, change laws, change procedures. That's always going to be very slow. So we are making progress. It's just very, very slow. And people typically have trouble realizing that the biases that we're talking about apply to them. They might be like, oh, I get that this might happen but I don't do that. And that's normal. That's a completely normal human decision process and thought. So I think all of those things tend to feed into the fact that we haven't made a lot of progress, or at least the progress has been very slow. So tell us a little bit about what you did in your study. Who were your subjects and what did you have them do? So for my study, I used fingerprint materials. And the reason I did that was well, there was a number of reasons, but the first reason is that we already know a lot about how fingerprints work in this kind of context. So there's been quite a bit of research showing that fingerprint analysts, both expert and non-expert, can be influenced by contextual information. So I already knew that that was going to work. So that was one of the reasons why I use fingerprints. The other one is that I can train people relatively easily on basic fingerprint analysis and so I was able to use the undergraduate students at my university and just train them to do fairly basic fingerprint analysis. And obviously the fingerprints that I gave them were not as difficult as an expert might get, but we can say that they would be generalizable because I sort of made them at the level that my students would be able to do. And then I also created some contextual information that was randomly assigned to these fingerprints. So I had mock case reports that had details of criminal investigations of the kind that you might see in a police case report. So maybe details about how the suspect confessed or that the suspect was found in the vicinity of the crime and matched the description of, from the eyewitness 
or something like that. Things that you would see in a police case report. So let me follow up on your earlier point before you go on. Mm -hmm. One of the things that immediately came to mind when I was reading the study was, well, your study involves non-experts. And obviously, experiments are rarely perfect. And sometimes we have to extrapolate. And where are you going to get test subjects? So this is a reasonable move to make. The question in my mind was, does it matter that what you have here are non-experts? I think your response here is that, well, they are non-experts who are being trained in this way, but the task that they are being asked to do is a lot easier. So in some sense, it's an analogous task that you are asking the subjects to do. Right, yes. I mean, it's important also to keep in mind that experts are just ordinary people. They just have a very special skill. And there's plenty of research showing that experts do make errors. It's just they make far fewer errors than a normal person would make. So what I'm suspecting, I haven't run this with experts, but the research suggests that the patterns would be the same, even if the actual rate of correct and incorrect decisions is slightly different. With experts, you would certainly expect more correct decisions and fewer incorrect decisions, but you would still see contextual bias effects, and you would still see the effects that I found with my potential solution to this contextual bias effect. Because I brought the task down to the level of my student, I was able to see patterns, and then I would expect those patterns to generalize to experts, just look slightly different in terms of actual numbers. Okay, thanks. That's great. So please continue on exactly how the study ran. Okay. I've talked about how I used fingerprints as my materials, and then these fingerprints had contextual information associated with them. So the actual paradigm itself, the main question that I was trying to get at was whether or not I could find a procedure that would remove the effect of contextual bias that we see with standard forensic comparisons. Some people had what I call the standard procedure, which is just receiving a crime print and then comparing that to a single fingerprint that was from the suspect. And that suspect could be the real match or it could be not a real match. And half of the time it was a match and half of the time it wasn't. So that was what I would call the standard procedure, which is supposed to be analogous to how forensic comparisons are carried out normally. And then I had another condition where instead of just receiving one fingerprint to compare to the crime scene print, I embedded that suspect print among similar fingerprints. And I'm going to refer to these fingerprints as filler fingerprints because the idea for this, I guess, solution to contextual bias came from eyewitness identification literature. And we call these distractor fingerprints or distractor people in a lineup of stimuli, we call them fillers because they look like the suspect, but we know that they're not the suspect. We know that they're not guilty. So half of the people got standard procedure, half of them got this lineup with fillers, and I call that the filler control procedure, just so that there's a name that I can use to refer to it. And so there was those two groups of people, and half of them also received the contextual information. So what I was expecting to see was that people who received contextual information that suggested that the suspect was guilty should make match decisions more often and therefore make more incorrect match decisions. But in the filler control procedure, because they had these other distractor fingerprints, 
the contextual information, they would still potentially suspect that there should be a match there. But the question is no longer, is there a match? It's, do you think that one of these is a match? And if so, which one? So the contextual information is no longer helpful to them unless they can find the suspect fingerprint and actually do the comparison task. Just to be clear, what you have here is one suspect and you have a crime scene and then you add fillers to that particular comparison rather than just having A, the suspect, and X, the unknown from the crime scene. You have A, B, C, and D and X, just like a lineup. Right. Now, the other way that I could imagine fillers being done is you give A and X, but In the ordinary course of business, there are also effectively control comparisons that are floating around that you know are not important, but you actually know whether or not it's a match or not a match, or it's similar or not similar. Why did you choose this lineup version rather than the multiple comparisons? So A and X, and then B and Y, and C and Z, except that the only one we care about is X. So you're suggesting that forensic examiners would get like tester comparisons to do? They would be getting samples that you know the answer to. Yes, that's right. Right. That's right. So they would be getting a whole set of comparisons, and we only really care about one of those comparisons. And that's quite different from this lineup that you've established here. Right, yes. The reason that the lineup is so special in this case is that unless you have the lineup, I guess in every case, the suspect is not protected if you split up the procedure like you suggest. The idea is that having that suspect embedded among others that looks similar, it forces people to do that objective task. It forces people to determine whether or not one of these prints matches the features in the crime print. And if they can't figure that out, then they can't make a decision. Whereas if you just have some tester ones in there, they might still make an error on the comparison between crime scene print X and comparison print A, and you might not know that. You might just know that they made an error on this tester one. But it's actually really difficult to create testing prints. It's hard to make proficiency tests. So it might be difficult to show that they made an error here and therefore we wonder if they've made an error in this other situation. So you might end up missing out on incorrect decisions that they've made. If you don't use a lineup, you use separate decisions. That's really interesting. What we have here is that when you do the proficiency test or you mix the proficiency tests in, you create incentives not to use context, but You don't have the protective effects, and I think we'll get to that piece later, but you don't have this added benefit that you do with the lineup, which is a really interesting aspect of your experiment. Okay, tell me about the study results, and then we'll talk a little bit more about implications. Essentially, what I found was exactly what I expected, which was very exciting. So in the standard procedure, I had contextual bias effects. So there were significantly more incorrect match decisions when incriminating contextual information was read before they'd made their examination of the fingerprints. So what that means is when people didn't receive context, there was a fairly low amount of incorrect match decisions, but then the people who received the contextual information, that was increased and that was significantly increased. 
Whereas in the fellow control procedure, essentially the effect of contextual bias was entirely neutralized, which is not something I anticipated. I thought it might be reduced, but in fact, I completely eliminated the effect of contextual bias. And what I mean by that is the number of incorrect match decisions that were made in the filler control procedure condition was essentially down at the level that it would be if they randomly chose between the fillers and the suspect. So essentially, it showed that the filler control procedure can protect these innocent suspects without too much. So it did decrease the number of correct decisions as well but not very much. So the trade-off essentially was very favorable in the filler control condition. The discussion section of your paper talks about something called filler siphoning. And this was something that I was not particularly familiar with from the literature previous to our discussion. And I thought maybe you could talk a little bit more about this idea of filler siphoning and why the idea is important in this context. Filler siphoning is typically talked about in the context of eyewitness identification research, and it's the process by which a lineup works or a lineup protects an innocent suspect. So let's use an example. Let's imagine that the police suspect is innocent in this case, and the police want to make a lineup to see if the eyewitness can spot their suspect in that lineup. If the suspect is innocent and the police select good fillers that are very similar to the suspect or at least match the description of the culprit, then the fillers should draw away some of the choosing from that innocent suspect because they should also be plausible choices. However, if the suspect was actually the culprit, because they are the culprit, they look like the culprit, the fillers are going to draw choosing away from the actual culprit far less. So it might draw some very uncertain eyewitnesses with poor memory for the crime. They might start choosing fillers, but most people are still going to choose the actual culprit in that case. And this is compared to what's called a show-up. If an innocent suspect is presented alone, there's no fillers to draw errors away from the innocent suspect. All of the errors that an eyewitness might make will fall on this innocent suspect. And in those situations, you start to get consequences like wrongful conviction. So essentially, filler siphoning is a way to explain how a lineup works and why it protects innocent suspects, but doesn't prevent people from choosing the correct culprit from a lineup. Now, I want to pursue this line with the eyewitness identifications and get some more of a sense of exactly how it should work in the fingerprinting context. Correct me if I'm wrong, but what I remember from eyewitness identifications is that lineups have this problem of relative comparisons, that the witness will come and choose the person that looks most like the person who committed the crime, but they're not making an absolute determination. They're just picking the person who is most like the person that they saw. And I thought that show-ups were the way to deal with this problem. But of course, I think the show-up here is a little different from what you were talking about. It's not just you present the suspect and you say, hey, is this the one that committed the robbery or whatever it was, but that actually you present each of the members of what is effectively a lineup sequentially And then the witness has to choose 
in an absolute way. So the witness has in their mind, you know, there are going to be other people too, so I have to make an absolute determination whether or not the person matches the person that I saw or not. Is this effectively what's going on in your experiment, that these comparisons have to be done in sequence? What you're describing there is a slightly different thing to a show-up. So in eyewitness identification, a show-up is simply where one suspect is shown to an eyewitness and they're asked, is this the person? And then when you present fillers and the suspect sequentially, which you are correct, does make people have to make an absolute judgment in each case about whether or not that's the culprit, that's called a sequential lineup. But what I've done in my fingerprint study is a simultaneous lineup of fingerprints. And that's where you start to get those relative comparisons happening. So what happens in that case is exactly as you said, they're going to select the person in that lineup that best matches their memory for the culprit. They may or may not be the actual person. They might just be the person in that lineup that looks most like the culprit. But that's how filler siphoning works, is that if you have good fillers, they should all look fairly close to the actual culprit, unless the actual culprit's in the lineup, in which case they look like themselves, so they're going to be the best match. And how it works with fingerprints is essentially the same, except it's no longer a memory task. It's a visual comparison task. You have the crime print there, and you're just looking at the simultaneous lineup of six fingerprints and deciding whether or not one of them looks most like the crime print. And so if they decide on an innocent or a non-matching print, that may or may not be a filler. And in that case, we would know they're incorrect. So if they pick a filler, we know that's incorrect. It might also be the innocent suspect, but that chance is going to be much lower when it's surrounded by fillers in a simultaneous type lineup. Would it make sense to use a sequential lineup in the fingerprinting context? It would, but what that takes away is this idea that they can take their time with analyzing more fingerprints. So if they're being presented with multiple fingerprints one at a time, only one of which is a suspect, I think that would make the fingerprint examiner's task very difficult because each fingerprint comparison, I'm not a fingerprint expert, so I don't know exactly what's involved in making those comparisons, but I do know that it takes quite a long time and there's a process that they work through and it's not something that they can do quickly like you would do with a sequential lineup as an eyewitness. So when you're looking at a lineup as an eyewitness, it becomes quite obvious quite quickly if someone is familiar or not. That's not what fingerprint experts are working with. They're making a close featured analysis of these fingerprints. So while it works the same, the process or the analysis that they're doing is quite different from what an eyewitness would be doing. So I don't think a sequential lineup would be as effective with fingerprinting. Final question for you. What's next? Are there projects you're working on now to further these findings? Or perhaps there are places that you'd like to see others pursue research in this area? Yeah, I mean, the thing about this research is that it's quite new. So this is the first example of research or procedure that has managed to eliminate contextual bias. So people cannot 
use the contextual information in this situation when they have these fingerprint lineups. So that's really exciting. The purpose of this was essentially to find a method that works in that way to remove bias. But the next step is to find something that is practical. And unfortunately, creating lineups in every case is probably going to be quite resource intensive, particularly when you start to consider that there's many types of evidence that this could be used in. And each one is going to have its own complexities when it comes to creating fillers and creating lineups. So the next step, in my opinion, the most important step is to try and come up with a way to make this efficient and also very effective. So my next step is to show that a limited application of this procedure would work just fine. And what I mean by that is using it as a sort of gatekeeper procedure. In fingerprint analysis, and I think many forensic techniques, they use a procedure called verification. So if someone decides that a crime scene sample matches a suspect's sample, then that needs to be sent to a second examiner, and they need to also confirm that. So that's called a verification decision. And in those situations, that's the kind of evidence that's going to end up going to court or being used against a suspect. So if that second examiner had to use the filler control procedure, that would be like a gatekeeper. Even if they have access to contextual information, if they cannot spot the suspect's print in that lineup, then potentially that is not a reliable match decision. And they should maybe think about that comparison again. I think that would be a very effective way of applying this kind of procedure in the real world with the fewest amount of policy change and resources applied to it. Well, Adele, thanks for taking the time to talk to us about the use of fillers in the forensic context. Great having you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Contextual information is a tricky thing. On the one hand, it's arguably part of good decision-making because context helps you set your priors. On the other hand, Psychologists have long shown us that context can lead to expectation bias. And to the extent that we want forensic comparisons to represent independent evidence, meaning evidence untainted by other evidence in the case, context can be a real problem. The most natural response to contextual information is blinding. But as Adele suggests, Standard forensic comparisons, even with blinding, still contain context. Receiving a single comparison sample from a crime scene, along with the suspect's sample, naturally suggests that investigators think that there should be a match. So how do we address this? As our conversation suggested, there are several ways that this can be done. One is to embed the desired forensic comparison among other comparisons with known answers, much like what's done in proficiency testing. That surely keeps the analysts honest, but as Adele argues, it doesn't offer any additional protection to the suspect in the case. Adele instead proposes creating a lineup using fillers where the analyst chooses from a set of samples that includes the suspect as well as known innocence. And then I suggested, 
perhaps taking Adele's proposal one step further. To eliminate relative comparisons, which is a problem in the eyewitness identification context, you could do a sequential lineup rather than a simultaneous one. Hidden under all of these discussions, though, is the ever-present concern about cost. All of these filler proposals involve additional testing and analysis. And in the heavily resource-constrained world of forensic testing, cost efficiency is critical. And that doesn't even get to the question of what reform is most likely to be implemented by what is likely an institution resistant to change. One last consideration, which is the subject of Adele's current research. How does one create appropriate fillers? After all, you can't just use any old fingerprint. That filler would be laughably dissimilar. At the same time, you can't just digitally change a few pixels on the suspect's fingerprint, because that would be unrealistically similar. A formal solution probably requires knowing something about the population statistics or base rates for fingerprints, but that's data that we actually don't have. I suspect that the practical solution here may come from research from eyewitness identifications and how you construct a proper lineup, which seems like a highly analogous problem. If that's true, Adele is well-positioned to make that happen in the future. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Megan Cole, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.